This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 107 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Mark Neiman Ross, we discuss Denis Villeneuve's 2016 film, Arrival. We'd like to welcome our guest this week, the author of multiple stories that have appeared in Analog Magazine, Mark Neiman Ross. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. And we're happy to have you. Uh, this is the this is the movie. This is the project we discussed two years ago and, and have been putting off. And I'm excited to actually have this conversation with you. Uh, I, this is... I don't know. I'm just I'm giddy to talk about this movie. And and as a subatomic particle say, I am super excited to be back as well. This is uh, this is probably <laughs> okay. one of my favorite movie story combinations. So it's really fun. Yeah, yeah. What an adaptation. I'm excited to be involved in it with you guys instead of ha- you guys having that conversation back in the car a couple of years ago. I know, right? Like, was like, we got to get James in on this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He might have something to uh, say. <laughs> yeah. This movie. uh I mean, I know we're not really getting into anything yet, but it is it is a excellent adaptation, in my opinion. It is the kind of adaptation that I think um, is truly an artistic achievement on its in its own right, yet does justice to the source material. And and those those two things can be hard to balance. We've seen it in other projects we've covered, and and I think it's a rare time when you see a film that really stands on its own as a piece of art yet you know is is such a loving adaptation of the source material too and and it's just a difficult thing to do and and I think this movie does it does it exceptionally well Luke I got a, I got a second shot on that one um this you know I read the story and then saw the movie and it's one of the few um combinations that I think it doesn't matter which way you come at it whether you watch mm. the movie first and then s- then read the story or whether you read the story and then see the movie either way they really kind of work together uh, I, I was really impressed with the writer's handling of what I see as a, a really really difficult story to convert to a visual media and I think he did a great job yeah with someone like Denny Villeneuve too like getting a hold of it it's like I think a dream come true for a writer right like like someone who's going to respect the material this much and go to every length to make sure that it is it is staying true to that source material is just I mean the guy's incredible and and we'll talk more about him as well as uh, Eric Heiser who really helped get this made right the the person who adapted the screenplay yeah I mean and and and, and Denis Villeneuve is one of my absolute favorite directors right now that's that's working in the industry um, I love his stuff we we uh, covered Blade Runner twenty forty nine early on in the podcast. And we both adored that film, and 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 I haven't even seen. I need to see Sicario. I know that's really highly highly regarded God. too. It, the, he the stretch that he had over like four or five years was unheard of. Like you could you could match it up against any filmmaker, and just like the the achievement of each of those films on its own, let alone the run he's had, is just unbelievable. And like he's really cemented himself at this point as like probably my favorite director. He's like he, in terms of like these like larger films that are that are really going for sci-fi a lot of like heady sci-fi concepts like he's he's it man he's he's on top of the world right now well i'm, I'm really encouraged to see that he's gonna be doing dune 
Um, yes. <laughs> you know, the, the, the first couple of screen adaptations were like, <laughs> maybe. Um, you know, but how do you adapt something like Dune for the screen? And yeah. hopefully based on his, his performance with this movie, uh, you know, his adaptation adaptation of Dune ought to be really, really an interesting take on it. Absolutely. I, I'm so excited for that. Yeah. Incredible cast, too. I can't, I, it's just like, it's got to be at this point, uh, honestly, I think it's my most anticipated movie for the foreseeable <laughs> future, like for, for yeah. anything that's been announced. I think it's uh, currently slated for December of 2020. And I know, James, that uh, we we really want to cover it. That is one that oh, we have penciled yeah. in already <laughs> a year in advance. I don't think there's a doubt. I don't think there's a doubt that we cover that. I think we'll we'll move heaven and earth to cover that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I noticed that he's um, he's the writer as well as a director and producer for Dune. Wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, I've heard him speak about it a little bit, and he was a huge fan. So, like, I, again, I think he's going to respect the hell out of the material. He's going to, he's going to, I think he's going to do it justice for sure. I hope so. And, and just the visual, the stunning imagery, the stunning filmmaking that goes on in these movies, um, to see someone bring that to the world of Dune it's just beyond excited for that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that really strikes me, I was thinking a lot about his filmography recently is how much he understands character and how centered around character these movies are. And, you know, sci-fi tends to be like a reflection of some sort of like concept that is otherworldly or something that's not familiar to us, but it's used to like show the humanity and these characters, every single one of his films has very distinct characters that he understands mm-hmm. and they, they drive the film. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I was really impressed, um, and, and I assume we can talk about that. There's a spaceship in this movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the his his first scene where he introduces that spaceship, and I don't know if you remember, but it's this amazing landscape with these clouds kind of coming over this hill, and it's yeah. this sense of I mean, you know, the spaceship itself is just like this big lump. It's it you know it doesn't have it doesn't have any external features it you know all the little blinky lights and everything right. that they threw in the close encounters, um, and it just it really, you know it, it's one of these amazing amazing landscapes that you look at and there's this earth landscape but then there's this foreign object that kind of fits mm. in and it's all this very you know very beautiful scenery yeah yeah I like that you said that it does kind of fit in because it does and in it it reflects sort of like the natural wonder in in its shape um but yet it's so alien because it is not recognizable to us as a craft and and you know that's reflected in a lot of the design that he uses for these aliens um which we can get into more maybe in the spoiler section mm-hmm. yeah uh just to speak to what you guys were talking about the I was really struck in this film specifically about how i mean he's always all of his films are beautiful but he really went out of his way in order to show the beauty on earth and where i which i think is interesting and unique for a sci-fi film like this because i feel like a lot of the times a director could get caught up in really emphasizing how amazing all these sci-fi elements are and how Mm. otherworldly they are and in this it's just interesting and it's something we should talk about going forward how he decided to really focus a lot of these like gorgeous shots on humanity and earth and natural landscapes and things we've seen before yeah well before we get too deep into it we have a few announcements to make here at the top of the episode uh first off we have a signed copy of Stories of Your Life and Others, which is a collection uh, that includes the the story called Story of Your Life that is the basis for this film. 
Uh, and if you listened to us last week, you know we're giving this we're giving this away. I, I got it at a event that uh, Mark actually helps run here in Portland, where uh, authors come out and do readings. And uh, Ted came out and gave a, a presentation, and I was able to go up to him afterward, and I got two copies signed, one for me and one for the <laughs> listeners. So <laughs> um, I'm going to be giving that one out. And the way to enter to get that is to send us an email with a subject line of heptapods. Um, if you want to include your uh, contact information, you can. Otherwise, we'll reach out to you, and then you can send it to us then if you win. Um, but send us the email, let us know you're interested, and we'll we'll put you on a list. That we'll do like a random number generator and pick a, pick the winner. Um, and then Mark also generously offered to include some of his own collections. So the winner of Ted Chang's collection is also going to receive two of Mark's collections, and that's Phantom Sense and Humanity by Proxy, which both include stories published in Analog Magazine, hard sci-fi stories that should appeal to fans of Ted Chang. Yes. Yeah, if you like Ted, you'll you'll love me, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you enjoy Mark on this episode, you know I also recommend it for that. Uh, and so, not only is the winner going to get the Ted Chang uh, signed copy and these signed copies from Mark, uh, the runner-up, we're going to also go ahead and give another copy of the collection of Mark's collection too. So um, there will be two winners uh, ultimately. Um, so make sure to enter by sending us that email. Hopefully that was all clear. Oh, we do need to say that the contest is limited to U.S. residents only, and that's just because shipping costs out of country are just prohibitive for us right now. Yeah, I'm excited uh, and kind of jealous of, of of our listeners for being <laughs> a shot at these. So, so definitely enter and uh, and enjoy these these great reads. So, are you going to send in an email like Bailey Jame? Hey, yeah. I have yeah. heptapods. <laughs> I could just make a random email and then yeah, get it shipped yeah. to a PO box or something. <laughs> Um, oh, so that does remind me one more announcement. Uh, we are going to be adding a feature to our Patreon that is going to be what we're called calling reading prompts. These are going to be, we, we put a poll up to see if people would be interested in this. And the overwhelming response was yes, that people were. And essentially that's going to be us announcing upcoming projects so you can get a jump on your reading. As soon as basically we know we're going to cover something, we're going to put out a little like two or three minute, maybe five, I don't know. Uh, announcement on our Patreon um, so that you can get a jump on the reading in advance. Uh, and we also will probably do a few newsflash episodes every now and then. Not long, very short, but if we feel like there's something really pressing or really exciting that we want to talk about real quick, we'll do a little newsflash episode as well. Those will come out on the Patreon feed. If you are already a patron, you are going to get them. Um, but we are also adding a $1 level That'll be our new base level, and that base level, $1 level, will get you access to these special little announcement things. So yep. hopefully that so, interests you. <laughs> and an example of the, the, news, uh, the news flashes, we, uh, there's, we've covered Jurassic Park, and there was something that came out on YouTube that was kind of a short film shot by uh, Colin Trevorrow, who directed Jurassic World, which we haven't gotten to yet, but it's kind of within this, like, the, like, canon of Jurassic Park now. And we were we were talking about like what we what else we could do, and I felt like that is a great example of like maybe in the future if something like that drops and it's like very mm -hmm. time it's like uh, we realize it very quickly we could cover that and talk about it, and I feel like it's just like a cool way to interact with some of the projects that we've covered or or maybe even just something coming up or something cool that's happened in the in our, this field of movies and, yeah. and books. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're curious about that, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and that new uh, that new tier should be on there. I'm going to go ahead and edit it after this episode and everything should be set up. So we'd love to have you sign up. Okay, so how I want to cover this episode is I'd like to start 
talking about Denis Villeneuve and Eric Kaiser, who was the writer of the screenplay. And we'll move into non-spoilers, talk generally. Um, we're going to really try to stay non-spoiler because last week I think we got we teetered into some spoilers in our non-spoiler talk. Yeah, I noticed that we uh, we gave away some things because I think I was coming at it from a perspective of like, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen the movie. But I don't think that's the right way to approach it. So uh, be aware, if you go back and listen to our previous episode, we do kind of spoil the story early on, some elements of it. We're going to try our best not to do that for this film. We'll do a brief, fairly brief non-spoiler section, and then we'll move into spoilers. Right before we get started, I do want to shout out Amanda VP and Cora S for commissioning these episodes uh, with their tokens, also on Patreon. So shout out to them. Hopefully they enjoy these episodes. And you do too. Yeah, thank you. So to start us off, Denis Villeneuve is a French-Canadian film director and writer. He's best known for his feature films Incendies, Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049. Oh man, I forgot he did Prisoners. That's another great movie. Well, yeah. and I haven't even seen all of those movies. I need to see. I need to see all those movies. Apparently, I mean that tra- that was that was also over like a seven-year span, right there. Wow. So like. It's like the the productivity level right there is insane. I don't know how he didn't go insane with that many projects going on in his head. I just wanted to talk about him a little bit uh, in terms of a filmmaker and why he's so successful at what he's doing here. Um, did you guys, do you have any like g- like general thoughts really quickly about like what strikes you about him as a filmmaker? Yeah, um, pop quiz. What strikes me is, I mean, I'm just amazed at how he was able to take um, what I consider to be a really challenging um, written story and convert it into a visual medium. The other thing that really hits me is that he um, he spent a lot of time focusing on the actual message of the story rather than building up all of these, you know, fantastic, you know, there's no laser beams and there's no sparkly lights and there's none of the typical trappings that you see in a science fiction movie. Um, it's It is all very, very... Uh, understated, and you don't get lost in the technology, and instead you're kind of pushed towards what what's going on in the story. And I I really respect that. Um, you know, I, th- I think we we all look at science fiction. Um, I mean, Star Wars. You know, let's take Star Wars, and Star Wars is a big grand romp through fun technology. You know. Mm-hmm. And and there's and a little and magic, right? And magic, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and there's cute little robots, and there's big spaceships, and um, you know, you're really, really overwhelmed with all this technology. Um, and and what he did in Arrival is really stick to the story. Uh, you know, again, we were talking about this spaceship, and the spaceship is almost this kind of a natural rock. Uh, mm-hmm. He didn't do any of the trappings that you typically see on spaceships, you know, the things that come out and the wings that do this. It's like, no, um, you know, you, you see this thing and you go like, okay, great. But what's the story behind what's going on here? So I really respect him for doing that. Yeah, I actually thought that it was almost more Lovecraftian in a sense. Um, and, and not that it creates horror, but that it created a sense of awe. Um, and, and, and on the face of something that you can't understand and, and the design of those ships, cause like it, it is, it was frightening, you know, and I think he did a good job of showing how humans were terrified by these things showing up and they're so weird and no one knows what they want and they just all appeared and, and we can't figure out why they are where they are and what are they going to do? Are they going to attack us? And the unknown is terrifying. And that's what, you know, Lovecraft's all about in, in mm-hmm. essence or Lovecraftian fiction 
And it, I love that uh, Villeneuve was able to lean on that for this film, whereas I don't think that was a big part of the story. So that's something he sort of brought and imagined for the screen adaptation that I think works really well. Yeah, yeah, I like what you said with the creatures at first are also fairly they are kind of scary right like they're like oh, even yeah. like the their voices the noises that they're making they it is like ominous like everything feels like big and like larger than humanity and it just feels like we're we become like so insignificant right away when they first enter the ship there's um there is this disorientation and i think that um you know that then he does a, a spectacular job of kind of hovering over this edge of, you know, this all feels very normal and this ship is just a rock. But then there's this moment of going like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a little bit alien. Um, and then you're suddenly tossed into this thing where he doesn't take you out of the story, but he does give you the sense that you're in some, you're in, you're in an entirely new world. Um, something where where you where your assumptions don't necessarily work anymore. Yeah, that's true. I was really struck in this film by ha- by the way that he changed the story pretty drastically, mm. but was still able to and and I think the, I think decisions were made that do work better for a feature film than than say like a a short story. And the the decisions that were made in this case were the correct ones because not only did it kind of make the story a little easier to follow, maybe for a general audience, and that's not to take away from it, though, because it doesn't feel like it's this movie that's like sp- supposed to be broadly appealing and, and like, you know, lowest common denominator stuff. Like, it's very oh, no, clearly it's a well-crafted Very film. smart movie. Yeah. Doesn't, exactly. Doesn't, yeah. It's not holding your hand. It's, it's no, allowing you to, to discover things as they're happening. And I really, like, applaud him for that because making as as mark said this this story seemed unfilmable it seemed like a film that was or a story that was would be nearly impossible to portray on film but somehow they were able to change the perfect things that still speak to i think the message and yet it's very different so i think we'll have yeah. to talk about that more in spoilers yeah james yeah. actually i was this is one thing i'm particularly interested in hearing your opinion about is you know as a writer um, sense of timing on a story is is one thing, but it, I was watching this movie going, going like, you know, I never realized how different a sense of timing is in a movie than it is in a written story. And and for me, watching this movie was kind of a, you know, a, a brief education in how do you how do you pace a visual narrative versus how do you pace a written narrative? Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on what, why he did what he did and mm-hmm. why he added what he added. But we'll have to get into that when we're past spoilers. Yeah. Guess, so <laughs> so just, just to speak to that a little bit, Luke and I have had this conversation a little bit about uh, the idea of when you're reading a novel, it's at your pace, right? So you're, you're reading and you can, you can choose to stop reading and digest a chapter. And with, a, with the narrative of a, of a, of a film and, and with like the, the always moving forward pace of, of a narrative, uh, you know, chronological narrative that we have, that film is like this moving through time medium. Um, it, it is so fascinating to see somebody tackle what was hard to do in a book in a, in a film that never stops, you know? So like you have to, the audience has to understand what's going on and yet you can't give them any, everything or else the reveals won't be there. And, and it's just like that sense of 
I don't know. It, it, it's a it's a miracle to me that this this movie exists in its form, and and I think it has something to do with the fact that Denis Villeneuve has said that if he wasn't a director, he would be an editor. So I think he has a really mm. strong grasp on like mm-hmm. cutting and and when to show certain things and really understanding like how it should all come together. And I think that's a huge huge plus as a as a director. Like if you're a director who also thinks as an editor, you know what you're getting on the day and what you can cut around and. I just think that he's he's really uh, a brilliant filmmaker. So I went up to Ted after his presentation to get the book signed. And while he was signing my the copies, I asked him, what did you think of the adaptation? What did you think of Arrival? And he said he liked it. He said that he thought that he, it got the heart of the story correct. He mentioned that there were some changes, and the way he said it kind of seemed like maybe he didn't agree with all of them, which as the creator of the story... You have to imagine that's going to be the case. Um, And he also talked a little bit about the process of uh, getting it adapted. And essentially, uh, uh, Eric Heiserer, is that how you say his name? Came to him to uh, as an offer to to shop around his screenplay based off of story of your life. And there was no money exchanged, I found out, which I thought was kind of interesting. But apparently this he said that this is this does happen sometimes. So essentially, uh, no money was given to Ted, but he said, I want to I want to shop around this adaptation. If we can get a director to sign on, obviously, then you would be selling the rights. Um, so he gave like permission to shop, I guess. I'm not really sure what the like legal term is. And he gave it based off of the uh, I think the track record of the screenwriter, which I didn't do a lot of research into. But I know you said earlier that both of you know a little bit about about his background. So I'd be curious to know about the screenwriter, because something about him made Ted uh, sign on for this and then obviously you look at the director that got landed and that's you know obviously a home run to me well from from what i understand really quickly is just that eric heiser sold ted potentially on the story based off of a a working screenplay that he had written for it so right. so he was a so he he saw that this person understood his story in a way that he approved of and i think that's how he was able to go forward with it and he's also yes. looking for financial backing because there wasn't any that's really what you need is you need a studio to put the money up for the film mm. and then you can get a director involved okay um, unless the direct unless it's like the director's baby who then in that case they would be the ones who were shopping it around but i was i was really fascinated to hear about eric heiser because he really was the shepherd of this film like he before denis was on he was the he was the person who was like he had the screenplay, he had Ted's permission and he was going and pitching and, and working to get financial backing and, and like power to him because without him, I don't think this film exists. I mean, Eric, Eric's, um, you know, his writing credits prior to arrival are actually not all that impressive. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Final Destination, The Thing, um, you know, it's oh, like... Oh, wait, wait, he wrote on The Thing? Yeah. Or is it 2011, The Thing? 2011, The Thing. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's like, okay. Um, wow. You know, but then he gets into writing The Hours, uh, which was, you know, that was that was a, a real, um, it was a real tense, you know, thing. Where I won't give it, get into that, but it was he really played with the idea of events having to happen in a certain thing. Um you know, and then then he starts to get into Arrival. Then he writes Bird Box, which uh, you know wow. was another. Uh, that's another movie you guys should think about doing. Is Bird? Yeah. It's on the list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you know about this. That's one, one we yeah. want to cover mm-hmm. at some point. I just don't know when it's going to happen. But yeah, yeah that's. Uh, I've heard good things. In in also it following up the sort of uh, 
general thoughts. James, me and you were talking yesterday. I want to see what Mark's reaction is to this, too. And uh, I think just last night we were talking about this. And this movie made me think of it. And that's that to, in this day and age, to me, it feels sort of rebellious or, or almost punk rock to say, I unabashedly love this thing. Because in today's Twitter world, it seems to me like the the most popular things are takedowns, are reasons why things are actually bad. Like, oh, that thing you love is actually terrible, and let me tell you why. And there's something, like, cynical about that. And um, everyone, everyone, I feel like you're vulnerable when you put yourself out there publicly saying you like something because you're just waiting for someone to come in and tell you why you have terrible taste, to tell you why the mm-hmm. thing is actually bad, and you're bad for liking it. And... I thought that that's something we try and do on this podcast is we try and champion things, put ourselves out there, open ourselves up for that sort of criticism. Um, but I think it's an important thing to do. And this movie makes me want to do it because um, I do unabashedly love it. And I, upon my second viewing, I actually think this might be one of my favorite movies. Wow. So I, I did want to say as well that this idea of film criticism, I think, is is highly important. I think that it's one of the most important things with, with filmmaking because it also right. helps push along uh, a, you know, better stories going forward. Yeah. But and we are critical. I, I'm not saying we're no, always yeah, absolutely. You know, rainbows and unicorns. But my but my main caveat is that I think that you it has to come from a place of loving film. Because if, I, I worry that a lot of these takedown articles and a lot of these like hot takes and things that people say undermine a lot of the hard work that goes into it and a lot of things that in and maybe not the best films there are great things to acknowledge you know and Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of how i approach a lot of films is that like even if it's the worst movie you've ever seen there's got to be a takeaway there's got to be something in there for you to learn or grow or or you know whether it's to not do that thing i think it's important to to always look at it with a critical eye, but also realize that like it's a movie and like, you know, it's not life or death and like it, people have different <laughs> tastes and this kind of thing. So yeah. I think uh, I think it's got to come from love. For There's sure. subjectivity that's involved, you might say. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to write um, music reviews uh, in a, mm. a previous job and um, really love doing it. You know, I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a musician, quote unquote. Um, and so I watch these, you know, I watch what musicians are doing and I have a real feeling for the amount of work and effort that it goes into to doing a, an effective piece of music. And there were a lot of people that said, well, you know, we should, we should talk about why this artist is trivial or, you know, what's, what's wrong with this artist. And I finally got to the point, I wrote one or two of those, didn't enjoy them. Then finally got to the realization that there is more good music than I have time to review. So why don't I spend my time focusing on the good music that I can review versus mm. focusing on stuff that doesn't deserve any attention at all? And, you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of, not every piece is perfect, <laughs> no? mm-hmm. but there's a lot of stuff that has a lot of um, really delightful components to it. And that's the part that I think really makes the difference is how much, how much of that are you willing or how much of that are you able to bring out in any piece of art? Yeah, I totally like that. agree. Yeah. I did have one more thing I wanted to say. Villeneuve is famous for telling his screenwriters because we talked about how um, Heiser championed this film and, and basically helped get it made. But so Denis Villeneuve is very particular about telling his screenwriters he's going to be their best friend because no one will protect the message and the heart of the film from the script as as strongly 
And he, he's like, I'll die for the film. I die the poetry that's on the page. I'll die for it. But at the same time, he's going to be their worst enemy because he's going to distort scenes and he's going to change dialogue and he's going to <laughs> do things to make change it and to turn it into his vision. So it's like I love that he like approaches it while telling the screenwriter like this is where I'm coming from. Um, and knowing how how much uh, Heiser was championing this film, it's just like that's an interesting relationship and and a funny, I guess, a funny way to approach it. Yeah, it, that it sounds it like managing sense. relationships to me. <laughs> yeah, it, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, when I'm when I'm writing stuff, uh, the hardest critics to get are the ones who will be honest with me and be constructive about it or useful. And who are, you know, willing to look at a story and go like, you know what, this character is really, really flat. Um, it doesn't mean the whole story is flat. It just means this is one part that you have to do. And in finding people who can um, have enough sophistication about their critique to be able to dice up the good parts from the bad parts. That's, I mean, that's gold. And you're talking about an unpublished story, right? Yeah, well, yeah, any, you know, <laughs> preferably I'd get, I'd get that feedback <laughs> yeah. on an unpublished story, but you know, sometimes you don't get that choice. So. I do want to back up my, my, essentially my, this is great comment about this movie. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple things that aren't spoilers to talk about the music in this film. Um, I, I looked into it and there's a composer that does the majority of the music, but the main theme is a song called on the nature of daylight that was written by Max Richter, who has done tons of great themes. He, he's famous for like the leftovers theme, just all sorts of stuff. I love his music. And apparently this was not written for this movie. It was actually used in another movie, um, maybe more than one other movie, mm -hmm. um, which is amazing to me because the name of the, of the song sounds like it was inspired by Ted Chang's story on the nature of daylight, which we talked about the whole, uh, Fermat's principle of least time as it regards to uh, mm. like a beam of light. Mm. So I thought that it was this clever reference and I was all excited. And then I realized that it was written before the movie came out. And, and I don't think it was, it was sp specifically meant to be that way. So it's just one of those like happy coincidences. It's really cool. Um, but regardless, that theme is sort of like captures the emotional core of this movie that is so moving. Um, and, and that's one of the things I love about film is how you can bring together the theme, you can bring together the character, what you're seeing on screen, the artistry, and then you put in this gorgeous score, and it, it really can manipulate your emotions. Um, and it can bring tears to my eyes in ways that that reading often can struggle to do. Uh, the, the composer, by the his name is uh, Johan Johansson. Yeah, and he also did great work. I, I shouldn't undersell that. There's a lot of really good stuff in there, too. Yeah. Well, and, and that, I mean, uh, by the way, did great work is the key word here. He died in 2018. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, RIP, that's that's awful to hear. But, mm. well, we're uh, we're celebrating his, his uh, life here and in a time as a flat circle uh, <laughs> yeah. sort of way. Um, it, it, it lives on. It's immortalized by this film. Um, we, I should stop referencing True Detective <laughs> when we talk about this. Very tonally different project. Um <laughs> Um, yeah. I have one more kind of non-spoiler thing to say that actually can kind of set us up for discussion once we get past the spoiler wall. Um, I think this movie not only captures the truth of Ted Chiang's story and its emotional core, but it also reimagines it in a way that adds additional themes and sort of like plot lines that on first blush seemed like maybe it was kind of Hollywooding it up a little. 
Mm-hmm. But on my second viewing, I actually really appreciated that the the added plot of um, I'm going to call it the communication, the human human communication plot um, actually flows naturally out of the main plot and the main themes of this story. And I actually thought it was brilliant how he was able to introduce this, which added more to the like gust like a uh, girth to the movie that otherwise would have maybe been a little too short. Um, yet the two things can play off of each other so well. Um, and, and, and I really kind of thought of it as almost a like tower of Babel sort of, um, parable that was going on at the same time that we were getting this, this in-depth look at, uh, you know, language and, and our perception of reality. And, um, yeah, I just, I know we need kind of needed to do spoilers to talk about that, but I wanted to give that before the spoiler wall that just sort of, if, if you're thinking about checking out this movie, um, if you're interested in that sort of thing and how communication can unite and divide us. Um, and you're, and we haven't already sold you on the movie, like wholehearted recommendation, definitely check this thing out. The changes, that's, that's kind of what I was getting at before with like, it, it very well could have been something that was written, I think in Ted Chang's original version of the story. In my opinion, it, it threads in so nicely with the overall, with the overall motive and like what the actual story is trying to say that it feels it doesn't feel like any sort of disconnect and as you were saying it does kind of seem like it becomes like a bigger third act kind of situation that you would see in a hollywood film but it works it it works two ways i think it works it works for both things you know Um, i i gotta disagree um okay okay, yeah i think ted's the way that ted wrote it and the stuff that even okay knowing what i know about the movie and the element that was added in the movie that's not in the story, I think if you had added that into the story, you would have obscured a bunch of really important concepts that are in the writing. And the way that they were presented then in a movie, it was so much more appropriate to present that stuff in a visual format than mm-hmm. it would be to try to write all the complex dialogue that was going on mm-hmm. and the concepts back and forth. I think it would have just muddled the printed story. So, that, yeah. so not not that it, it is inappropriate in the film, but that the the part you disagree with is that it was would work as well in the story. I, I can see where you're coming from with that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think and, that it, it was what he. I mean, the stuff that's added is perfect for adding into the movie, and it right. totally totally improves the movie or the movie adaptation of the concept. Trying to do that in writing is like you know, uh, yeah, that would have been a lot of dialogue. That's really kind of messy, and people had to wade through it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. What I think I was getting at is just that the heart that like it it felt in keeping with what he, something he could have written if it wasn't if it was an alternate version of Ted's yeah. story. Yeah, so we're definitely touching up against that wall, that spoiler wall. So we really yeah. need to move into it at this point. Let's, let's so that pass we can... to the other side of the screen. Yes, hang out exactly. with the heptapods. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Storm Area 51, right? Right. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> I want to go hang okay. out with some of the aliens. <laughs> so from here on, full spoilers, I'm going to go through fairly chronologically. I'm going to be reading sh- short passages. I think there's like five pieces here that we have to kind of cover the plot, and uh, we'll react to each. Linguist Louise Banks' daughter, Hannah, dies in adolescence from an incurable illness. Twelve spacecrafts hover over locations around the Earth. In the United States, Colonel G.T. Weber recruits Banks and physicist Ian Donnelly to study the craft that landed in Montana. On board, Banks and Donnelly make contact with seven-limbed aliens whom they call heptapods. Donnelly nicknames them Abbott and Costello. Banks and Donnelly begin researching their written language 
of complicated circular symbols, sharing results with the other nations. As Banks studies the language, she starts to have flashback visions of a child. When Banks is able to establish sufficient shared vocabulary to ask why the aliens have come, they answer, offer weapon. However, China translates this as use weapon, prompting them to break off communications and other nations follow. Banks argues the symbol interpreted as weapon might mean tool and that China's translation likely results from the competitive nature of their interaction with the aliens centered on Mahjong. Ooh, okay, that covered a lot. <laughs> so I, I, I'm amazed. Uh, that feels like a third of the movie, at least. Um I want to back up and and focus, uh, kind of take these things as they ha- as they occur, right? So uh, I want to start off talking about the opening of the movie, which is an emotional haymaker. Um, and and yeah, let's just let's just open up. What what were your thoughts on that, Mark? Well, I mean, you 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 start to walk in immediately to this emotion. Well, you're you're carried through this, and they and they throughout the story, you're carried through this emotional subplot that you're not entirely in sync with. That you don't know what are we, what 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 is you know the first flashbacks you get are these really brief out of focus kind of um, you know uh, the, you know diffused visions of children and interactions and some sort of thing and it's as the movie progresses these become clearer and clearer until you suddenly realize how they all connect and how they connect with the the main story. Um, but I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like, what was it? Love story where, you know, at the end, the pretty woman dies and everybody's crying and it's, you know, it's a hospital scene all over again. Um, so he, you know, he starts with this really, like you say, this really, really emotional point where you're, you can't ignore that. You can't ignore, um, what do these flashbacks have to do with the characters? In starting a film this way, we're seeing basically we're assuming as humans the way that we think chronologically. So we're thinking right, right away that it's it's she's already lost someone going into the story. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I got to shout out a uh, YouTube channel that I've mentioned many times, I think, in the history of our podcast. Uh, Nerdwriter1 um, has a, an episode, uh, I think it's called like Arrival, a... a refutation of bad movies or something like that and it's a great it's a great video essay and he talks about in that essay um the 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 language of film and uh, he talks about something called the kuleshov effect which uh was demonstrated by uh, alfred hitchcock in showing like you know you show a man's face and then you show like a reverse shot of something and then you go back to the man's face and depending on what this the second shot is will add context to the face that is otherwise neutral and mm. essentially like you can make the guy look like he's a perv or you can make the guy look like he's mm-hmm. like a kindly old gentleman you know what i mean just off of the reverse shot the famous one i was surprised that he used the hitchcock one because the famous one is like it, it flashes from a man's face to like a bowl of soup and he seems hungry and then it flashes to like a, a child in a coffin and he seems like sorrowful and oh, sad interesting and so it's like but this was like a kuleshov was a russian filmmaker who was like figuring this out way way back Huh. Right. So huh. his argument is that that Villeneuve is using that technique to make us think that this just by the where it's positioned in the film is the backstory of Luis that informs her sort of early disinterest she has at the start of this movie where she sort of um kind of has this like a neutral affect and she seems kind of disinterested in what's happening on the news until she's sort of forced to to confront it and she seems very neutral. 
and we can project grief onto that neutralness and we can project like oh she's lost a child so she's see she's just like moving through life in this state of despair um and so he's able to play with that mm-hmm. in a brilliant way and and that's something that i think i really enjoyed about watching this movie a second time because i i could come in and and recognize some of these tricks and also recognize the things that's being set up by doing this early on you know and, uh, yeah that's great some something i'd recommend is if you're if you're watching this movie after having read the story to be sure to watch the movie with somebody who has not read the story. <laughs> yeah. And it, which is, I had the fortunate, I mean, my wife has not read the story and we watched the movie together and it was really interesting to see her piece these bits together. And right. you, I mean, it was like, we almost, we almost had to stop. And I, she, you know, she says, what, <laughs> what, <laughs> where yeah. does this fit in? Um, it's like, nope, can't tell you. Got to watch yeah. the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that that's something that's like a very savvy filmmaker can only figure that out because at what point are you giving too much information to the audience to where they can figure it out or too early? Because I feel like it's perfect. He finds the perfect balance in this one to where if you don't know going in what that, that, you know, what happens to the daughter, then it all hits you like a ton of bricks right there at the end. Everything comes together. Everything makes Mm -hmm. sense. And, and I mean, that's the best feeling in, in cinema, in my opinion, is when like these kinds of things all come and they've they've been threaded throughout, and you're curious enough to, and you you understand that something's going on, but you can't figure it out until it actually happens. And it's I think it's tough to do with. with I think there's a lot of savvy viewers out there. And that's a twist on right, and, and it starts right at the beginning of this movie. It's it's he's 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 literally showing us all of the information, um, right? You know, yeah. with the with the maybe a few little exceptions of things not being shown to us, and because we don't have context. Naturally, we form context based off of our shared cinematic language that we've all accepted as like, this is how movies go. And he's using that to fool us so that when the end comes around, we realize that the assumptions we made were false. Um, You know, especially if you haven't read the story. And I don't know, that's so smart to do. And it doesn't feel cheap. And instead, Mm -hmm. it feels it feels I don't know. Amazing. It's a it's an awesome feeling. Yeah, Yeah. And if you've read the story and you're walking into the movie, you can feel you feel very smug. You know, about watching yeah. this opening scene and going like, I know. Yeah, you know? yeah. I can see that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so I did want to mention something that I didn't catch. I understood the reference the first time I watched the movie, but I didn't catch it and really, really think about it until this time. There is a, so clearly we talked about, or I just read the synopsis of how their names are Abbott and Costello. And I'm mm-hmm. familiar with Abbott and Costello, and I'm definitely familiar with Who's On First. But I was wondering if you guys made that connection with Ivan Casella and who's on first with what's going on with the plot here, because I felt that this was incredible. I, no, let's hear it. Well, I haven't. What about you, Mark? Well, I, I mean, I, I know who's on first. I've, I've memorized it and performed it one time. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> who's on first? What's on second? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who's on third. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> third base. We can um, do the whole thing. Yeah. No, Which is about, it's about like... Uh, the ambiguity of language, right, is kind of the the kind of. joke there. Well, the jo- the joke being the 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 premise of what they're doing is asking who, what, I don't know, at, like understanding each other and asking questions and going around in circles and like, like trying to figure out yeah. like is do, are they, do I understand what they're because they're saying something? Do I fully comprehend what they're saying? 
you know, because of the whole the whole bit of who's on first is he's saying exactly the information, but he's not interpreting it the way that he's saying it. Right. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's it's worth going to see their presentation because it's it's a you know it's a master of comedies, right? Incredible. Um, yeah. You know, their use of Abbott and Costello, I didn't catch that. And actually, I was a little put off that they decided to call it Abbott and Costello. In the story, they call them, what is it, Strawberry and Ras- Flapper. Raspberry and something, yeah. Yeah. Raspberry and, and Flapper. Raspberry yeah. and Flapper, which I thought was, okay, those are, you know, totally generic names. Um, yeah. yeah. you got Do you it. feel a little better about it, knowing now the reference? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so totally happy now. So, so the... Uh, <laughs> I love I love filmmaker like film loves film right like film references film yeah. so it's just it seems like it's so fitting that that and it's like in like it could be an obnoxious way that like um, these names that were just arbitrary in the story they're like let's make a film reference here and I I love it as somebody who loves film like I love it but I understand if people were frustrated by it but I I like that you enjoy it now I well I do <laughs> I, I and I can see that in the context of a film you know you don't have a lot of time to be dorking around trying to figure out what the name of this character is why do they call him flapper <laughs> I don't know does he flap and if you name right. him Abbott and Costello it's like fine whatever go yeah and also knowing what 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 you just said James it makes sense for the characters because uh, when Ian recommends that we call them Abbott and Costello Louise just kind of says like yeah like it's fitting. Yeah. And you could see that she would be the kind of person who would understand the sort of communications joke that he might be making there. Yeah. yeah. So it's cool that it works on all these different levels. I, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Um, another thing at the beginning here, and this was this is my moment of, I watch movies differently now, James, because of you and this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I was noticing visual things that, that would have definitely escaped me in the past, especially on second viewing. And... Uh, I, I, this could be a cinematography cinematography thing. I'm not sure, but in the early scenes when she is at the university, I assume it is. Um, there's a roundness to lots of different scenes. Like uh, first off, in the flash fo- forward scenes, there's a round like she's walking in this sort of circular uh, hallway that seems to be like in a in a cancer ward or something. Um, and then there's a there's sort of a arched shape to the classroom. And then when she's walking through these corridors, there's this sort of um, like you could draw lines from like the top corners of the screen and the bottom corners of the screen. And as you follow those lines towards the center, there's like objects in this in the frame that match to those lines. Mm -hmm. So we call those leading leading lines. Okay, and it creates this sort of like corridor effect that I thought was brilliant because it, it is sort of like visually setting up the corridor that they walk down hmm. where that lead oh, up yeah. to this screen. It was all these like these little touches. And then there's even a moment when um, the general comes to ask her to, to, to for their, her first help. Like, um, and, she, and she, in fact, he ends up leaving, right? She says no at first, essentially, because she has to go there. And then he says, oh, you know, he leaves. When he comes in, when he first comes in, he's and the, the, the camera turns around so you can see him over her shoulder. The, she has a computer screen that you view from behind and it's actually in a weird like shell like shape and it's black and it looms in the screen for a little bit, just like the, the alien ships do later in the film. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't notice the, uh, the laptop thing. That's cool. The computer, that kind of stuff just, it makes me like, I'm like, it's a, it's a, it's a filmmaker who is just in supreme control of what he's doing and the language of, of the medium that he's using. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the leading lines thing while we're here. 
Um, okay. Now that you've noticed that, I want you to start looking for it in all films because it's something <laughs> that because film is is viewed in like a 2D environment, that three dimensional, those lines going in a, in a direction that lead your eye a certain way is what a filmmaker will use to show three dimensional space. And, and it always looks way more cin- cinematic if you can line up some sort of line going either across the across or further away mm-hmm. and give it that depth. So just start looking for it, and I guarantee you're going to be like, oh, my God, it's everywhere. Well, and there's also this slow pan he does where he comes down into it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's related at all, but I, I don't know. It's just something I, he does that several different times because he's, when he's in his or her house, he does it. And then it's the same when they're in the alien spacecraft, he does it. And it comes down towards the windows in the house in the same way that it comes down to the screen in the in the ship. Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, I'd, I'd love to talk about his visualization of the aliens and and the mm. ship and the the internal um, and and I I don't want to get into the whole disorienting moment when they first step into the ship because that's a that's a whole other thing that I want to talk about. But the, <laughs> okay, <laughs> the the thing that really um, that I was at first put off by and then I really fell in love with was his his depiction of these aliens and and they're you know they're depicted as big, but um, you can they're viewing them through basically a view screen or a, a window or something, we don't know. But there's a solid separation between the two of them. And the alien side of this event is is very um, misty, very smoky, very... Um, it's hard to actually make out specific um, lines or f- specific figures. You know, you, there isn't a lot of resolution on the aliens. Um, occasionally they mm-hmm. do... There's that one scene where she's having a dream sequence, and this alien snaps into really tight focus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What did you, uh, we're gonna have to talk about that too? There's so much to talk <laughs> well, about. Well, that's what I'm hoping you'll do. So, yeah. t- give me some filmmaker background on the choices that he made there. Originally, that scene that you're talking about with the popping in of the of the heptapod for her her nightmare, that was a normal scene with Jeremy Renner's character in in the scene. And they realized that they were they were just playing around with the edit and realized that like they wanted this like sort of montage thing to be happening, and they had this hard cut from Jeremy Renner to Jeremy Renner and it was jarring and they didn't something about it spoke to them though, and they placed I guess in that scene like that that was the inspiration for them realizing like they wanted to have this like really like. Uh, just like this really shocking scene where it just like pops in on the, like a very jarring mm-hmm. moment where Scary. it pops in on them. So, so I mean, I, and I think it works, but it's just funny to see like how that wasn't something that was necessarily planned. I think they like added it in later, like in the edit, they realized mm-hmm. like, let's add a heptapod right here. Interesting. Hmm, okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the design um, because I think the design of the aliens in some ways mimics the design of the ships in, in, in its um, strategy. And, and that's that, there's no, there are no eyes on these aliens. And I think we talked about this in a different project, James. I can't mm. remember which one it was. But when you don't give an alien eyes, it doesn't then have a recognizable face to us. And mm. when something doesn't have a face, we don't really know where to look. And that's unsettling. Mm-hmm. And so these creatures are, they're just appear to be legs. And, and then their bodies actually disappear into mist. So we're unclear how tall they are. For now, and but until um, we see later, them. we see right. sort of a head, kind of, but it doesn't have eyes or any recognizable features. But it was weird that it even had a head, right? Like I thought right. that was really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's this reveal, but, right? Like, yeah. It, it, I mean, giving it that that knob on the top at the very, very last scene, kind of. And we then we're looking, 
from behind the character Aunt Louise. And yeah. it, it is this very, um, you know, there's a sense of like, whoa, there is a lot of scale going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the importance of the moment really snaps out. But you're right. The rest of the time, it's kind of this fuzzy, you know, cousin it sort of. Was it thing? No, the thing? What was the hand? Um, oh, the yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it yeah. is called thing. Yeah. Yeah, the thing. You know, so all we're seeing is this, like, you know, like I can say, there's no eyes, there's no ears, there's no mouth. Right. How's it? Yeah. How's it hearing? How's it seeing us? Like what? No one knows. Yeah. 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 Um, which is unsettling. So I have to use this opportunity to uh, talk about the cinematographer because you mentioned how you were enjoying the cinematography. So yeah, I I was listening to a lot of Denis Villeneuve's uh, interviews and he talked about the look that they were going for with this film. And it's what they called. And now I've now I've heard of like gritty and dirty sci-fi before, but I think they're 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 talking about something different here. So this is basically what it says. It says, "Dirty sci-fi is what Denis Villeneuve and cinematographer Bradford Young called the look they created together for Arrival." Villeneuve wanted to wanted it to feel like this was happening on a bad Tuesday morning, like when you were a kid on a school bus on a rainy day, and you dream while you look out the window at the clouds. So this sort of like overcast like like not clean and sleek sci-fi like we talked about like the monolithic figure of the ship and it's like black instead of being any sort of like sleek silver or any lights or anything and it's this sort of like muted sci-fi film Bradford Young was the the DP on on this film so the cinematographer and he was he was integral to the look and it's interesting because for the most part Villeneuve has worked with Roger Deakins who's like a legend like I don't know if there's like a greater living legend cinematographer right now. Deakins was actually committed to another film at this point. So he went looking and he found young and was really struck by just like the, the voice and like his style and like what he, what he brought to the table. And I think that's why this, this film, although in fitting with Villeneuve's like kind of overall style is, is slightly different. And it is this sort of like, like I was saying, like muted almost while also being like beautiful at times and very vibrant. You know, I mean, that it strikes me that the, the choices they made in the character design, both of the, the aliens and the ship. Um, and then I think about the choices that they made in, you know, the star Wars, the ships and the aliens are extremely there. You know, that's a different visualization. And then, and the idea of, Luke's flight down the Death Star Valley would have been an entirely different um, experience if there hadn't been all these obstacles and things and lights and, you know, explosions. You look at the ship in Arrival and it's this, you know, Luke flying over the ship would have been like, it's like flying over North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it, it gives you an entirely different kind of a feel for what's going to happen and the message of this movie. Uh, and that, I just, I, you know, that's an interesting thing to look at that and go like, wow, okay, they were actually thinking about that when they designed this this ship. I know I didn't. It was for me, it was entirely subtle. It was entirely subconscious. Yeah. I think they also, uh, by necessity, had to engage with Independence Day, the film. Oh. I think that if you if you're an American who's seen movies, you've probably seen an Independence Day. It's a very famous movie about an invasion, and it and it and it has all these different large craft appearing in different spots over the over the world. And coming into this movie, like that was in people's minds, mm. 
And I think they had to play with that a little bit, right? And they, and I think they do. I think they, they use a little bit of that, like, oh, is this going to be an attack? Um, because that's sort of like our, our cultural consciousness is to assume that, assume uh, intent is, 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 is uh, negative, right? Or is uh, antagonistic. And uh, they kind of play with us that in that way. Because it does, in, even though the shape is different, and to me it harkens a little bit to the design of those ships. And the, these big dark shapes that loom so large. So I actually read the inspiration for the ship, the shape of the ship was the first thing that they nailed down for the aliens design and all of those things. And it's based on a an asteroid in space that was like that's like fairly close to Earth's orbit at some point or another. It was or whatever it was. It was in space and they had they had pictures of it. And it's this sort of like weirdly smooth, like egg shaped thing that Villeneuve just like was fascinated by. And he's like, that's how I want the ship to look um, without realizing until later, like what he wanted the inside to look like. And then when he mm. started to think about the inside, that's when he came up with the idea to have the shift in gravity in order to kind of like portray how you could a ship that tall and very skinny, like how it could, how it could be used. And then ultimately we see the ship go on its side, them go on their sides at the end, which is like very typical flying saucer looking spacecrafts. Right. Yeah. But they, they behave in ways that are that are atypical in a lot of in a lot of that sense too. Definitely, um, we got to get through more plot. But just real quick, um, <laughs> Jeremy Renner's uh, Ian character is introduced, and I loved that through very short amount of time on screen, they make us like him. They make us like him because while everybody else is serious and everybody else is afraid, he's calm, he's happy, he's smiling, he's cracking jokes, and he immediately becomes sort of this emotional. Um, like life vest that we can grab onto, and mm. uh, it, I think it, it makes the audience fall in love with him as well as Luis uh, here early on. And I really like he never that. shoots a bow and arrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Missed opportunity, yes. That, that probably angered some people. I assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One last thing I want to say before we move into more plot, just because I think this is uh-huh. a great time to get it out. Uh, there were only two days of principal photography which were spent using green screen in this entire film. Um, which Denis Villeneuve has said he is very against green screen. He does not like it. He feels like it's hard on the hits hard on himself to imagine and to understand the space and understand what's going on, as well as the actors to get better performances. So he originally wanted animatronic heptapods, but it just wasn't in the budget. He couldn't pull it off. Um, and so they had to do CG and they, they did everything else practical. All the set, like the interior of the ship was really built. And he jokingly said that they spent all of their money on the inside of that interior of the wow. of the ship. Huh. Uh, yeah. Which, which is ironic because, th- well, the inside of the ship good. is just basically a big gymnasium. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. W- w- of black rock. Yeah, Apparently yeah, they something. use like a crazy amount of lights in order to light up the, the one end and all this. Uh, yeah. It was just oh, a whole like huge the, the, set the, the, and everything. The screen, yeah. I think he said something about I don't know how valid this is, but it came out of his mouth. So he said something like forty thousand lights were used in order to light up the giant film that was between the heptapods and the and the humans. I in believe order to it because it shows the reverse shots of Louise walking up to it, and you see all the light on her face and stuff. Right. So but it just really having, does glow. Having been on a set, I can't even imagine what forty thousand lights would look like. But the director said yeah. it, so we're gonna go with that. I just <laughs> okay. I can't even fathom what that would look like. Huh. Uh, yeah, that would be a fascinating set to get onto. Um, it would be uh, uh, animatronic heptapods would have been a really um, God, yeah. 
I can't imagine the challenges you would have had trying to do something of that size and getting right. it to move. Oh God. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> they probably would have had to do some sort of scaling, like scale, scale sizes and manipulation of, cause there's no way they'd have something that big. Yeah. It, it would be a, a huge hassle. Speaking of scale, uh, when, when Luis is first flying, flying up in the helicopter, there's an awesome scene where she looks down at, and she sees all the people gathered up at the edge of the fence. They're all little tiny, t- tiny ants. And then she, you look at her and she starts to like search the forest for the alien craft. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say that, but you can tell that's what she's yeah. doing. She's like looking around like, where is it? And then she like all of a sudden realizes <laughs> and she looks up out of the front of the helicopter and sees it just looming. And it's such a like close POV thing that they do where they they demonstrate the immensity of these objects. And I always like that's such a smart way to do it. And, 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 and it it gives like a very authentic feeling to you as a audience member to put yourselves in, in, in her shoes. Okay. So continuing the plot, rogue soldiers plant a bomb in the Montana craft unaware banks and Donnelly re-enter the vessel and the aliens give them an extremely complex message. Just before the bomb explodes, one of the aliens ejects Donnelly and banks, knocking them unconscious. Donnelly discovers that the symbol for time is present through the message and the writing occupies exactly one twelfth of the 3d space in which it is projected. Banks suggests that the full message is split among the 12 craft and the aliens want all the nations to share what they learn. So we didn't really mention in the last section, I wanted to talk a little bit about like China misinterpreting it and, and just the, the genius, I think, um, idea of if you present a challenge and like with winners and losers with Mahjong, how that would, for communication could be played differently and seen as, as aggressive rather than helpful. You know, something that, that came to mind is I've, I've always dealt with the idea that <clears throat> the answer you get will depend on the on the question you ask, or more importantly, how you ask the question. Uh, and it, it gets into a concept of framing, which is, you know, cognitive bias and stuff like that. But it was really interesting to see them pull that concept in, in that much time, and then we're off. Uh, you know, another a really beautiful piece of writing to bring a really, really complex topic in, drop it in your lap, and then move on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the fractured narrative and communication of humanity is, is throughout this movie, going back to when Luis is, is scrolling through her channel, her news channels and getting a piece of the story here and a piece oh, of the story yeah. here and a piece of the story here. And then you see all the screens and you see all the different interpretations and you see the, the soldier listening to the, you know, the Breitbart guy going off or whatever you want to info like, wars right, guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and the misinformation and the, and the, the, the labeling. And it also plays into that line that Ian quotes where he says, you know, language is the first weapon drawn in a conflict. And I just love how all of that works together. And that's that's the other plot that I was talking about in this movie that's added that really flows organically out of this out of this language as a as a mode of perceiving the universe. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not like somebody who is super steeped in Bible stuff and like understands the story of the Tower of Babel like on, on that level. But from my basic understanding, like I just kept thinking of that idea of like the fractured languages of humanity and the inability to communicate and then how the the aliens are sort of driving humanity to unify in a way that will make everybody stronger and i I think this is one thing i mean this this whole idea of the 12 um things is not in the original written story Mm -hmm. um 
but the fact that they added it in and how they added it in. And this, this gets back to my original comments about, um, you know, this is something that you could not have put into the written story, this idea of 12 components. You know, there is one shot where there are 12 monitors and you immediately realize they are coming in from all the different locations. And, yeah. you know, it's just like, that's all you need to understand that we are talking about 12 different sites and 12 different flows. And now we've got conflict. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it was like that much. That's all you needed. Yeah. And to write that out in a story would have just been like, oh, come on, get on yeah. with it. You could have gotten right. mired into the politics of oh, yeah. all these different countries and everything. And, and yeah. whereas he, he's able to do it very efficiently. Yeah. Like you said. Visually. Something else that comes to mind too is is that, um, and it's kind of funny, the uh, the idea that there are twelve of these things, and where did they land? You know, I don't know if you remember. There's that brief vignette where they talk. It's a news story where they talk about there's twelve of them and they landed in all these weird places, and we can't really figure out why they put them there. Um, you know, the the one of the one of the what is it? One of the correlation points they have is is that this is. Everywhere that Sheena Easton recorded a hit yeah, or some that was funny, sort of yeah. thing, you know. So <laughs> they were talking yeah, about yeah potential <laughs> potential reasons that they were connected in any way, and like clearly that's not it. It's yeah. just such a funny <laughs> coincidence. Well, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing. dig at false correlation, right? You know, mm-hmm. right. Correlation. It's like nah, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. The other interesting thing is is that he chose the number twelve, which mm. which can be a very biblical number if you choose to interpret it that way, um, you know. And then he drops okay. it runs away from it. I, I don't know anything about the number 12 and why that would be biblical. Uh, well, I guess 12 commandments. I uh, guess but, 12 no, commandments, commandments, 12 so tribes of Israel. Uh, uh, you know, it, it keeps, okay. So the earth was created. Wait, it's in 10 commandments, states, right? But yeah. How ten, many commandments I'm sorry. Are there? 10 commandments, <laughs> 10, 12 commandments. Well, depends. I'm having my own tower of Babel moment. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah. You're right. 10 commandments. <laughs> um, but uh, they, they use that number a lot. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about before we get too far too. what do we think of the change? Because I don't know, I I won't give it away. What what do you guys think of the change of having the daughter die due to a rare illness? Well, instead of a rock climbing accident. I think that that's wrapped up in a couple of things. Um, Okay. So I I also want to know your guys' opinions on this, but in terms of a decision being made by our main character, there's this idea that I kind of maybe talked about a little bit in our last episode, but if it's like, if you're seeing, if you're seeing your daughter who, you know, will one day die in a climbing accident, start to learn to climb, you might try to stop that. Our, our, our main character clearly doesn't, but that was like what we were talking about before is just like, would you be like, I don't think I could live in a world where I could see my child start to climb and know that that's how they would die. I would stop. I would try to stop it. Um, mm. And we talked about kind of like, you know, accepting fate and understand determinism and all those things. Now, this kind of takes that out of it, right? This is yes. like, this is predetermined. This is going to happen in no fault of your own. There's nothing you could do to stop this ever other than not having a child. So it takes a little bit of the decision making out of it other than the fact that she still decides to have the child. So it's like less of her saying like, because I think there's something, there's something very specific about saying like my daughter's learning to climb and i'm not going to stop her that's like a decision the character's yeah. making whereas yeah. this is more of my daughter is born now and i know one day she'll die so make the best of it but i mean there there is there was an interesting um twist that that they added by adding this particular um you know it, it was it, it was a um a very rare genetic disease 
that his her daughter dies of. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you caught this, but the conversation. The radiation. Yeah. Well, it's because it's implied that um, that genetic disease came about because she took off her exposure suit mm-hmm. in in the um, the viewing room. And the reason that she's divorced is because um, Ian, her husband, is pissed off at her because she took that chance and that resulted in this genetic disease that is going to kill their kid. Well, and he's pissed off that she, that he, he said she made the wrong choice. Yeah, yeah right. And I, I read that as she should have chose to not have the child at all. Right. Okay. And I think but, that's where the disagreement ultimately comes down. But in terms of the health, the health stuff, we get that one little comment where it's like, we're going to test your blood. We're going to do this. You seem to be all right as far as ra- radiation poisoning, but we don't get any determined like thing going forward. So I can totally see that where like it eventually could have been from that. It's interesting because I don't think it's necessarily objectively true. That no, but it was you caused could, by that. You could, but you, you could read it that you way. You can read into it that it yeah. was. Well, yeah. from the, from, the from the filmmaker's point of view, though, he spent significant amount of time with this doctor. He adds a character that's a doctor. Mm-hmm. He does blood tests. He shows blood tests on screen. He shows it twice, in fact. So he's definitely spending very, very valuable screen time bringing out this point. So James, hmm. as a filmmaker, what was he thinking? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, everything you do is going to be for a reason. So you, you could. There's definitely. He's, you know, he's either setting it up there so we think that, or he's setting it up there because that's what happened. You know, I think he's leaving it open ended yeah. enough for the for the audience member to to determine what they think. Um, yeah, and I think there's value in creating an ambiguous storyline like that like it could be that or it could not be that yeah. I, I don't think it has to be true but i like the idea that it could be true and, and it's, it's it's giving us something to talk about yeah. right and in terms of my mind like i i now that you've said that i think that it probably is kind of there within the context like you could you can definitely pull that out of it because it is it is why wasn't it cancer because it's a rare gen- illness and it's specifically genetic right think so uh, i think they yeah i believe that's what they said so like that could very well easily lead back to the to her taking her suit off so 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 to, but another angle at this i want to mention though is what you touched on a little bit i think this backs away from the determine the embracing of mm. a determinism that that ted chang's story is all about but there's still some of it in there there's still some, but it backs off because, like you said, it's not—it's the moment to moment. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna perform the actions that I know lead to my daughter's eventual death and teaching her to climb and allowing her to take classes or whatever it is. Um, that we see uh, in the story, Luis engages in actions that she knows are going to lead to that repeatedly throughout the rest of her life. Um, whereas this boils it all down to one moment, and I think that's. I think it's an easier pill to swallow for the modern audience. I think I agree with that. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and well, also being heartbreaking. Like it's not like it's, yes. it's still very effective. It still is heartbreaking and. But beautiful too. It's heartbreaking and beautiful at the same time. It's that, it's that wonderful dichotomy. Right. Feeling. And it still gets that whole point across maybe a little, it's a little bit softer of a blow than, than being like, Oh, I have to act out all of these things that lead to this thing happening. Um, which yeah. is tough, tough to swallow. I could, like I said, when I read the story, I was like, I don't know, even if I was like, oh, I'll, you know, it's the, it's the journey, not the ending, all that stuff. I don't yeah. know that I could force myself in my own and that's, narrative. And that's the challenge human... that, you know, we talked about that Ted Chang is, is trying to challenge you as a reader to, right. to, 
to really change the way you think about it. And it's tough. Right. And, and if you want that experience, the story's there for you. I think it's, yeah. that's the one. And that's probably the change that Ted was reacting to, I imagine, when he mentioned the changes. It's, I feel like it's probably this well, one. Well, since we're talking about changes as well, this idea that... I, I, so personally, I prefer the idea that the aliens are mysterious and we don't know why they're here. I felt that the mm. the idea that like they've passed on this language while being I do think it's cool. I do like that. Um, and I think it is kind of an easier ending for a, for a film goer. Um, that idea that like we didn't know why they were there. We don't we don't understand. We can't comprehend it was such a fun part of that Ted Chang short story. I thought that was like one of my favorite parts because it's just like it's they're so unknown. We, we are we mm. cannot comprehend what they're here for. Why they're like what they've c- accomplished by coming here. And yet it doesn't, there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, yeah, in contrast to the movie where they definitely, that final scene where they they close. This is why we're here. This is what we've done. This is what you're going to do. Right. You know, so we, uh, you know, the 3,000, we need you in 2,000 years, whatever it is. Right. Um, that's not in the, the written story. The written story, you just go like, mm, bye. <laughs> right. yeah. which, which did surprise yeah. me. I will say that we'll need you in 3,000 years. Like, that's a fun sci-fi concept. I, I like it. It's not like we have, we've seen something like that before, which is why I think it's a little easier for a film goer. Like we, Lucas talked about a lot in this episode is like that, that idea of like this film language that's been set up for decades now. It's easier to, to swallow like this idea that like, because I, I think that audiences, it would be more polarizing is what I'm trying to say, if, if right. we didn't get a definitive third There'd be a ending. lot of angry people on the internet afterwards. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> well, I, guess, I mean, that's the, the... We talked about this before, about how, you know, I was really frustrated because Ted gets to end a story with no ending. And, right. in the, you know, in the short stories I've written, I get those things kicked back to me all the time and going like, oh, your ending isn't strong enough. Uh, right. You know, the character does not get their just desserts. And, you know, you look at the movie and I go like, well, okay, so they did a strong ending. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, James as a filmmaker, again, I'll lean back to you and go like, how come you get to do that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the Denny Villeneuve question, right? It's like, it's like (laughs) if he, I think it's, if you do it effectively, cause it's like, cause we we're sitting here talking about how it's still so in keeping with, with Ted Chang's story, but it really isn't. There's, there's plenty of changes that kind of fundamentally change it here at the end. And yet, it's still, I think, a proper adaptation and one that has a lot of weight to it because, like I, th- like I said before, I think he sticks the the character, the humanity of it all, and like what the purpose of the story was. I think he still kind of sticks that landing. I think part of this is also that Ted Chang's story is a story and not a novel, because I think he would he would it would be harder sell to not get any motivation on the aliens if it was a full novel. Not to say it's impossible. But um, I think when you add all that length and you add multiple plot lines, you're gonna there's more of an expectation for a resolution to everything. And the movie, I think, is more akin to a novel because it Ooh. adds so much. And so I think because of the expanded length of the story, it was appropriate to tie more things off in a more satisfying way, whereas a, a short story, by definition, has to kind of get in and get out. And I, w- I would agree with that, and I find it... Um uh, ironic that we are now referring to a movie as the longer version of the story <laughs> right. versus, yeah. you know, the yeah. other way. <laughs> Unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm just going to finish up the plot here. China's General Shang issues an ultimatum to his local alien craft, demanding that it leaves China within 24 hours. 
Communications between the international research teams is terminated as worldwide panic sets in. Banks goes alone to the craft and it sends down a transport pod. Abbott is dying from the explosion. Costello explains that they have come to help humanity, for in 3,000 years they will need humanity's help in return. Banks realizes the weapon is their language, which changes humans' linear perception of time, allowing them to experience memories of future events. Banks' vision of the child are actually premonitions of her future daughter, Hannah. Banks returns to the camp as it is being evacuated and tells Donnelly that the alien language itself is the tool. She had a premonition of a United Nations event celebrating newfound unity following the alien arrival, in which Shang thanks her for having convinced him to call off the attack by calling his private number and reciting his wife's dying words. In the present, Banks steals CIA agent Halpern's satellite phone and calls Shang's number to recite the words. The Chinese announce that they are standing down and release their 12th of the message. The other countries follow suit and the 12 craft depart. During the evacuation of the camp, Donnelly expresses his love for Banks. They talk about life choices and whether he would change them if he could see the future. Banks knows that she will agree to have a child with him despite knowing their fate, that Hannah will die, and Donnelly will leave them after she reveals she knew this. So many things to say, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna let I wanna let you guys go go first. <laughs> so I, I, I'll start off by saying I read something that um, they worked really hard in order to get the perfect translation of exactly what they wanted the Chinese words to translate to in English. Okay, and apparently Villeneuve made the decision at the last minute to pull the subtitles so that we wouldn't compre- we wouldn't understand, and it's, or we'd be forced to go look it up. Yeah. Maybe. And so what the actual what the actual translation is is in war there are no winners only widows. Wow. Yeah, well, I think he was right to pull the subtitles. I mean, first of all, I don't like I don't like subtitles. Really? I love subtitles. Daily. Really? I, I mean, it depends on the movie. It depends on the movie. I that's like I I'm, I don't want to be reading this crap and then I start looking at the the, top, the typography. You know, it's like right. oh, that's a really badly spaced, you know, right. wave. Why are they that. yellow? Why are these <laughs> Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this case, though, the the story is not about the words that were exchanged, but the fact that Louise is able to jump back and forth between these two events. And, you know, she doesn't know the general's private phone number until he shows it to her years later at this conference. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't know his wife's dying words until he shows it to her years later at this conference. So, right. and you, you know, she's going like, come on, come on, come on, come on. What was it I was going to say? <laughs> so, mm-hmm, which yeah. is the really important part that you suddenly realize Louise is experiencing time in a nonlinear fashion. Right. Yeah. In, in a dramatic way that is uh, purely an invention for the movie, but works so well in a, in a crescendo of action and, uh, and not even action, but like a, a conflict and, and dramatic uh, resolution to what's been going on yeah. in this moment of she's running with the phone and they're they're pointing guns at her and she's trying to remember something that hasn't happened yet. And it's a third that. act of a film. It feels like it too. Like it right. feels like that the, the, they've, although maybe narratively kind of already told some of the climax. They're like let's let's have something else fully, fully be this like dramatic crazy ending and i think that it works villeneuve is able to balance like this sort of satisfying ending while also having this dramatic and and more action-packed ending and i think that that's something really notable because like i was saying before you need if in a film like this like you need to make the money back from the film or else like you're failing tons of people and so like that that sort of like decision making process that might go into a film like that at least it's like 
you know, it's artistically in keeping with everything else that's going on in the film. And although we can acknowledge that it's a film and it's a third act of a film, I think it like that the masters are able to like work inside of that framework and like really pull it off, even though it might be more of like a Hollywooding up of a story. Yeah, it was definitely a fruit cart upset sort of moment. Um, Right. You know, (laughs) they lock themselves in and there's people with guns and oh my God. Um, But, you know, I mean, to, to, to reinforce what you're saying here, I think that it was a really um, a well done um, restatement of the main theme that she has learned to think of things in a nonlinear sense. And the way she did that is by learning the language taught by the heptapods as, you know, this is the weapon or offer weapon. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah. So it's, yeah. you know, again, I mean, watch this movie with somebody who hasn't read the story. <laughs> Because yeah. that was very definitely that brought home uh, to to my my wife who was watching the movie. She's suddenly like, "Oh, <laughs> this is yeah. what happened." Well, I mean, it's a it's a it's a tough concept, honestly. I feel like you get you get familiar with it after after we've seen the movie twice and read the story and all that. Um, but the idea of nonlinear remembering things that happened in the future and all of that, like that's, that's tough stuff to really wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the movie has a large task ahead of it and, and trying to convey that in a way that people can understand. And I think it does a great job of, of sh- coming at it from multiple angles to show you this message. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the moment where she performs her future and she goes outside, gets picked up by that little pod and flies up into the actual ship and has the face-to-face conversation with the heptapods without the screen. And I thought that was an interesting sort of reflection of also like our culture right today, where we all look at things through screens. We're talking through a screen right now. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's screens everywhere. And, and the idea that she, to really get her final conversation, she's face-to-face with the heptapods, and, or the heptapod, I should say, because once we find out that one of them is, quote, death process which I thought was an interesting uh, concept. And um, there's also a potential plot hole that I don't think is a plot hole, but I I feel like people might call out as a plot hole. And that's the idea that why did one of them die if they know the future? Like, why did they allow themselves to die? And I have a, I have an answer for that that I think, I think closes that plot hole, but I'm curious if, if either of you have any takes on like why one of the heptopods would allow themselves to die to this bomb if they know the future, why why allow that? I mean, well, my my first thought is this is actually this is the one part of the movie that I'm going to call Denny and tell him. You know, you need to take this whole thing out, the whole bomb thing. <laughs> it's just, you know, <laughs> you didn't like the bomb. <laughs> what? Where did we? Why? How does this help anything? You know, how does this move the story? But regardless, um, I suspect that my answer to this will be identical to your answer, and so mm. I am going to toss it right back over the fence. Or I'm going to toss it right back through the screen to you. Well, I'll t- I'll take it real quick because I think I have okay. the same answer. But um, I'll just th- I'll just say the quick version, and then you can you can if it's the same thing. I think it's they're they're they need our help. There's some sort of sacrifice to show that they 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 will do what it takes to help us. Like in sacrificing themselves, they're showing like although we could have we could have saved ourselves, we decided to show you how important this is to us. So someone dying and you can understand like what that means to us. Um, and I think that that pushes forward the, the idea that like one day the humans will like come to the heptopods aid because they sacrificed and did so much. But oh, okay. is that different than yours? Yes, it is. 
Um, a little, so yeah. With that, I will reveal what I think. Um, okay, go ahead. I <clears throat> the the fact that they knew that there was a bomb in the um, waiting room indicates that they understood the entire arc of what was about to happen, and they did it anyhow. Mm-hmm. And we have another character in this story that understood the entire arc of their character and did it anyhow. That would be Louise with her daughter. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's true. We have an instance of the aliens doing exactly what Louise just did, or Louise doing exactly what the aliens do. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and just to add on to that, that was essentially what I was going to say. I think uh, there's this. This isn't a requirement. This is the way it has to go down. I think because they have to reach a certain level of understanding to be able to get the final message that that gets put up on the on the screen, right? With all the different coded um, bits of language that are going to be interpreted. If they hadn't got to this to progress to where they are now with the translation, then humanity wouldn't be equipped to translate it. So they have to push it to this last moment. And so they can't like just give them that early and then leave. Cause they won't, they won't have gotten to the point where they can understand it. And so I think that this moment has to happen and the, the heptapods are aware of it. And, and I think, yeah, like you said, like, I think when they touched down, they knew this was going to happen. Um, yet it was, it was an important thing that had to happen too. And so they embraced it. So I have a question then, if that's the case, um, in terms of like us understanding heptapod, why wouldn't they just give the, I guess because they, they understand like the unification of the world needs to happen in order for everything to go smoothly going forward. But that mean doesn't that technically mean that they're they're changing the future? <laughs> mm, they're 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 uh, performing their own future. This is the this is the idea so, of the. This, well, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a paradox, right? Like any time travel, so even backwards time travel of information is a is a paradox because how can she know something that she's never been told? That's a paradox, right. um, unless you accept that backwards time travel of information is possible. Right. I think I like that it's like instead of physical time travel, this is like information time travel. Like you're saying, like it's yeah. a little more feasible than like than like the paradoxes that show up when like two pe- the same persons in the same place kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, what <laughs> what's ironic is we in our own little world are now um, circling back to the first episode, the the previous episode <laughs> of this podcast, yeah. where yep. we talked about. Ted and his presentation at the SFWA thing where he talked about yep. prophecy being information moving backwards through time and the inability to change, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, changing the future mm-hmm. uh, as being something that can't happen because you can't move backwards in time or, you know, so. Yeah, go listen to that episode, honestly, because I feel like we did a really good job of diving into that, and and to do it here would add another hour to the episode. So let's not, <laughs> right, let's not rehash right. it here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to. I, I mean, I have one more major thing I want to talk about with the ending here. But if if you guys have anything else you want to chime in before I get to that, um, just maybe, a really quick maybe, note. Go ahead. I am uh, totally thrilled that they handled gravity inside the spaceship the way that they did. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the fact that you go into the spaceship and immediately your gravity, um, the direction of gravity changes. Um, and I'm, I'm going to uh, ref- or compare and contrast that with Battlestar Galactica's um, <laughs> very fluid use of gravity. 
uh, mm. how sometimes gravity exists, and when it's convenient, it doesn't. You know, I mean, it's like <laughs> it's so much cheaper to have characters walking around with gravity than it is to have mm-hmm. them floating around. Um, I, 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 but I think that they they made a nice cinematic um, concession to how gravity works inside this thing. So, booyah, bully for them. <laughs> that that whole scene was very yeah like you're saying very cinematic and and like that was like a nice sci-fi thing there for people who are who are very into like physics breaking very weird sci-fi things like that that's a big moment i feel like in terms of like seeing something cinematic in a sci-fi film like this like that that was one of the one of the big shows other than the aliens uh and their alphabet of like this being a like a sci-fi film you know like in mm-hmm. in like a more typical sense yeah uh, I do want to touch a little bit on the explosion because um, I, I think I had the initial reaction that you have, Mark, um, that that I didn't like it, and I, and I think that was one of my few things when I walked out later feeling like, eh, I just wish they hadn't gone that route. But on my second viewing, I I, I feel better about it. Um, I'm still not 100% sold, but I I think in a, in a way to me, it makes sense as a culmination of the uh the dangers of of miscommunication the dangers of this fragmented world we live in and it how much it can actually um poison our our efforts to go forward and to have a better life and to have a better existence and i i like that that confrontation comes to a head in this in this kind of explosion of violence um and just that it it gives teeth to that in a way that I think if you just kind of pretend like that, like nothing like that's going to happen, it kind of ignores the hysteria, the fear, the 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 misinformation. It, it kind of it, it minimizes it, and instead, this this action sort of takes it and puts it front and center and makes it affect things that are happening. Um, so, in my second viewing, I, I was able to come to terms with that explosion in a way that I think the first time around I was more off put by it. Yeah, I'm not buying it. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. What what about you, James? So, uh, like... Where where do you come down? In terms of the communication stuff, I think that it, it, like, it being such an important part of the film in terms of showing the rest of the world and the way that the communication has been has been handled, like, the the globe, on a global scale and, like, on a personal scale. Um, I get it. I also understand why it doesn't necessarily feel like it's in keeping with the rest of the film. Like it does feel a little jarring for that to be what happens. Um, yeah. It, it, I don't know. I, I'm, I ultimately, I think I like it, but it, it's, it, I think that is like one of the major like tonal shifts. Um, and then it shifts back after that. It just seems like it, it doesn't necessarily fit in this movie. Yeah. I, I, and, and I will say that it also doesn't really paint, um, our military in a very good light that like something like that could, could happen and would happen and that, you know, people would go against orders and do something like this. Um, it's not to say it, I don't believe that it could happen. It's just that it, 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 I can see that souring some people to it. Like, it just seems like, you know, you would hope that people would be more professional than that. Um, but I don't know when you're dealing with aliens, it's like all bets are off in some sense. Too. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand we've got, you know, today's news story about some Marine, building bombs to you know explode cnn that was that's a headline Um, right but on the flip side we're talking about a movie here with some pretty high concepts and i i kind of just got the sense it was really heavy-handed 
Um, you know, it's heavy handed yeah, and pedantic that. to try to get into, you know, why you shouldn't watch cable news. It's like, mm-hmm. really? <laughs> I do think that it, it does lend something to, to like our world today. Like it does kind of make a commentary, obviously, like you're saying it is kind of on the nose, but it, it is like, you know, it makes it a little more timely feeling or unfortunately timely feeling at least. So let's move into something that I think hopefully will leave a, maybe a, a feeling a little more positive. And that's, uh, to me, uh, I love the idea of Hannah, the name, being a palindrome, right? Forward and backwards the same mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. How that's echoed in her storyline and why why they chose that name uh, for their daughter and why Louise chose that name. And then also how the movie itself is bookended by the, the uh, montages of the daughter's life. And the the film, I believe, even opens and ends both on a uh, uh, scene or a frame of uh, of an infant, an infant baby, right? Mm-hmm. Infant baby, and of an infant. <laughs> um, I think it's Louise holding holding Hannah, yeah. Right, and uh, there's also a moment where, within the the tragedy, I, I just have to highlight the line. She says, "the the the baby's getting taken away from her." by the the doctor and is and is crying and she says come back to me come back to me Ooh. and then she, the the baby is given back to her and then we immediately see like at the end of that sequence her saying come back to me come back to me as her daughter dies and the emotional Ooh. weight of that um, and and sort of that again that bookend um i love that that like things are returning and coming back in that in that way and then even at the end of the movie um in a way that like usually you see the title card and the based on stuff at the beginning of the film, this movie instead puts it at the end, which I thought was like a an in- clever inversion and playing again with like the typical order of things. And so the structure of the film and of these scenes, just to me, it, like the way it plays into the theme and it, it plays off of the theme and riffs off the theme. It just seemed really cool to me. I'm I'm trying to remember where it starts and where it ends. And I remember one thing that has come to mind is, is Louise um, during the narration talks about where your story begins. Yeah. And she said, I think it was, she said, originally I thought it went, you know, it began at conception, but then I realized, no, it actually begins when the aliens um, appear. And I'm, I, I'm a little fuzzy on that one, but just going like, okay, okay that's, you know, it kind of sets the tone of the story. It's like, we're not sure where this is starting. Yeah. Well, that's when she first meets Ian or that's what leads her to meet Ian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also potentially giving giving fuel for your theory of the maybe the the, the, the development of her illness being tied to the mm-hmm. aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that that does all kind of work in that way, too. All right. I think we got to leave this thing as much as I want to talk about it for another hour. Uh, I think <laughs> I don't know that that seems like it's getting a little too long. So. Let's wrap this thing up. Mark, it has been a joy to have you on for these two episodes. I'm glad we were able to finally do this. And thank you so much for providing uh, the copies of your collections that we can give out to our listeners. I'm excited to do that. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, for thanks for joining us. Well, this has been really a lot of fun. I mean, um, I, yeah, again, this is probably one of my favorite stories. And uh, I am completely honored that two of my stories get to accompany Ted's uh, collection. It's like, this is like, you know, my, my brush with greatness here. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thanks for coming on, Mark. Uh, really appreciated your perspective on all this and, and you brought great insights. Yeah. Thanks, James. I appreciate your insight too. <laughs> all right. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and say goodbye now. 
thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, I'll see you around Portland. All right, you guys. We'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. This has really been fun. All right. So we just wanted to thank Amanda VP and Cora S one more time for commissioning this podcast. If you'd like to find out how you can commission one of your own, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And uh, wait a minute. I got a thought experiment for you, James. Someone wants to help our podcast out, yet they don't have any money. What do they do? Please leave a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The more reviews, the the more visibility we get. So if you wanted to just help out, definitely do that. Or? Or you could tell a friend. Just uh, word of mouth is definitely our, our friend in this in this game. So please tell your friends. And if they if you think they'd be interested in our book coverage or our movie coverage, we really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, if you know anybody who loves Arrival, tell them about this episode. We really appreciate that. Help us out. Uh, you can f- connect with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at Ink to Film on all three. We want to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music and Jennifer Delazano for providing our transcripts. And we do want to go ahead and announce our next project. That is going to be Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yes, that's right. Now for something completely different. <laughs> Monty Python's eternal words, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, I'm excited. Um, I cannot wait for this one. This is, I've been, we're getting into the mature Harry Potter now, a little more mature. <laughs> so we'll see, uh, we'll see yeah. how it all reflects. I'm into it, man. I'm, I'm definitely excited too. Um yeah, hopefully you guys will, will, will check that out. We do lots of different genres here. If you're only into, in it for the sci-fi, we'll return to sci-fi. We always do sci-fi every so often. So um, definitely keep an eye on our feed. But thank you for joining us for this. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did talking about this movie and this story. Well, until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.